please go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 115. Psalm 115, 115. And while you're doing that, I want to bring to your attention that some of mankind's greatest contributions have come from people who decided that no sacrifice was too large and no effort was too great to accomplish what they had set out to do. For example, Edward Gibbon spent 26 years writing his great work on history. Noah Webster, you may know of a dictionary named after him, he worked diligently for 36 years to bring into print the first edition of that dictionary. It's said that the Roman orator Cicero practiced speaking before friends every day for 30 years in order to perfect his public speaking. What stamina these folks have, what persistence, what determination toward a goal. Well, this morning, we're starting our Advent series called We Need God. And we're going to see in Psalm 115 that God's people are called to a no-holds-barred devotion to one thing. It's a lifelong dedication to one ultimate goal. A dedication that must not diminish in the midst of trials of life. It shouldn't diminish in the midst of ridicule and taunting that comes from those opposed to this goal. And even in the midst of times of prosperity and blessing, it must not diminish this one ultimate goal. It's a call that is purposeful, it's passionate, it's persistent, and it's pervasive. This one all-important and all-defining goal is reflecting the glory of God. Today we're going to see that we must zealously and pervasively reflect the supreme glory of God. We must zealously and pervasively reflect the supreme glory of God. In this psalm, we're going to see a supreme glory. We're going to see a humiliating taunt. We're going to see a commanded and active response, and we're going to see an inevitable outcome. So let's get started with the first of these four points. The first one is the supreme glory. Now, we're not told in scriptures who wrote Psalm 115. And we're not told exactly when it was written. There's some speculation that it happened after the exile, but nobody's exactly sure. It is part of a collection of psalms, specifically Psalms 113 through 118, that are called the Hallel Psalms, or praise psalms is the literal translation of Hallel. It's where the word hallelujah means praise the Lord. These psalms were recited at Jewish feasts and this particular group of psalms became associated with the Passover observance. Typically, Psalm 113 and 114 were sung before the Passover meal was observed, and then 115 through 118 were sung after the meal. So in Psalm 113, God is praised for his saving acts. Remember the Passover that happened right before God delivered his people um, from Egypt. 
Psalm 114 expounds on God's faithfulness to save and to his covenant people, specifically in that deliverance that occurred from captivity in Egypt. And then after drinking the final cup of the Passover meal, Psalm 115 is sung. And it starts in a way no other psalm in the Bible starts. It starts with a negative proclamation. Here's what it says. Let's look on the screen. 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. See, this psalm begins with the psalmist rejecting any measure of glory being attributed to himself or to the people. He passionately cries out a refusal to receive glory. He spurns any type of personal attribution of glory and declares that the right place for giving glory is to Yahweh, to the Lord, as it's translated in our English Bibles, to His name alone. And verse 1 tells us Yahweh is deserving of this specifically because of His steadfast love and His faithfulness. And that word faithfulness can also be translated truth. God has been steadfastly loving his people and faithfully truthful in all that he does. The Lord has made covenant with his people. He has shown this consistent, unfaltering love for his people. And he's proven himself true over and over and over and over again. And this distinction seems to emphasize the differing characteristics between the people, not to us, and to God who should receive the glory. The people have not demonstrated a steadfastness in their love. The people have not proven themselves faithful again and again. You don't have to read very much in the Old Testament to see that. However, the Lord has demonstrated His supremacy over and over in mighty acts, confirming His love for His people and His commitment to truth and faithfulness, even when His people have fallen short. And the psalmist loudly entreats this God, this Yahweh, this worthy one, to receive all the glory, all the glory. Let none of the glory be attributed anywhere else than to the Lord. God is uniquely deserving of all glory. Quite frankly, it would be absurd to presume that God's people are deserving of any glory at all. I mean, the Lord is clearly superior. James Hamilton says it this way. He says, to recognize Yahweh's superiority is to recognize that he should glorify himself, not those who lack his perfection. Man was never created to be a glory absorber, but a glory reflector. We are not meant to absorb glory for ourselves. We're called to reflect the glory of another. You've heard me use this illustration before, but it's so appropriate here as well. Do you ever marvel at the beauty and glory of a full moon on a clear night? It's the kind of thing that's so beautiful, striking, and it causes us to look at others and say, look at the moon right now. Do you see that? Do you see how beautiful that is, how spectacular? Well, for those that may not remember this from school, the moon is a dead rock. It's a dead rock. It does not emanate anything from itself. 
It's not a light source. It is merely reflecting the glory of something else. The light that we see when we look at the moon is simply the reflection of the sun's light off of it. Any glory we see from the moon is because it is reflecting the greater glory of the sun. You see, we are mirrors. We're mirrors. Mirrors reflect that which they are pointed at. We're going to touch on this more in a moment, but let me just ask some quick questions to prime the pump here a little. If someone looked at the mirror of your life right now, what would they see? What are you reflecting? What is the object or the person or the desire that your life most reflects? Is it your job? Is it your kids? Is it a desire you have for romance? Is it a craving that you have to be admired? Is it your good deeds or even your ministry? Or is it the one of whom 1 Chronicles 29, 11, and 12 speaks? It says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Mirrors reflect what they're pointed at. What is your orientation? Where is your mirror aimed? What's in your mirror? Well, continuing in verse 2, we're going to see that those who do not worship the Lord are taunting God's people. So our second point today is the humiliating taunt. Let's look at verse 2 together. It says, why should the nation say, where is their God? Why should the nation say, where is their God? So it seems that God's people are being taunted and challenged by others about where their God is. The implication here is that these people have a reason to ask. There's something provoking them to this question. Evidently, there's some sort of trial or perhaps suffering that's causing these people to see a disparity between what Yahweh has promised and who Yahweh claims to be and the circumstances of the Lord's people. See, idol worship was pervasive during this time. There were idols for all kinds of things. There were temples and shrines built for these idols, sacrifices made to these idols, food brought to these idols made of silver and gold, highly detailed, intricately decorated, inanimate objects that were worshipped and revered. These people who worship idols made of silver and gold are taunting God's people saying, where's your God? We know where our gods are, but where is your God and why is he not doing what he allegedly said he would do? You see, by asking the question, these nations are showing that they do not fear Yahweh. They don't expect him to put things right and they don't believe his promises or his claims about his own character. Now the psalmist began this psalm exalting the Lord's character and his actions. 
And he does not allow this taunt to go unchallenged. Look at how he answers the question in verse 3. He says, our God's in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases, or he does all that he pleases. See, this psalmist answers by beginning to contrast the Lord, Yahweh, to the gods of the nations, these idols. First, he extols the sovereignty of Yahweh. He's in heaven doing all that he pleases. There's nothing that the Lord pleases to do that he doesn't do. This phrase is emphasized in the original language, and it applies three key differences between Yahweh and these inferior gods that are idols. The first one's this, autonomy. Autonomy. Yahweh, the Lord, is in heaven doing all that he pleases. He's sovereignly reigning. He's in control of it. He's not asking anybody's permission. He's taking action whenever it suits his purposes and his will. He also has ability. The fact that he is doing all that he pleases demonstrates his power to actually accomplish his will. He has power to go with his freedom to act. And then there's this characteristic of transcendence. He's in heaven. He is beyond our comprehension. We can't contain him. We can't put him on an altar. We can't put him on a shelf like Elf on a Shelf. He's bigger than that. He's in heaven doing all that he pleases. And the psalmist then describes the gods, these idols that the nations are so reverently worshiping and relying on. Let's look at verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. First, these people have had to make their gods. They've had to work to make their gods. Think about this for a second. These people have fashioned gods with their hands and then submitted themselves to them, hoping for provision and deliverance from them. The creator is now worshiping its creation. They are worshiping dead, lifeless objects, imploring them to take action on their behalf. Habakkuk 2 talks about the futility of this. It says, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake! To a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. The psalmist points out the absurdity of this, the absurdity of idol worship. Their gods have mouths, but they cannot speak. They are not able to instruct. They are not able to encourage. They are not able to promise. They are not able to pray for. They have eyes but do not see. They can't watch over. They can't observe what's happening. They have ears but do not hear. They cannot hear the cries and the pleas of their worshipers. Hands but do not feel. They can't reach out and comfort. They can't help. They can't pick something up and carry it for you. They have feet but do not walk. 
They can't move from where you put them. They cannot move toward their people, and they can't go forth on behalf of their people. They make no sound with their throat. They're without breath. They are void of life. They cannot speak creation into existence. Their idols are worthless. They are incompetent and they are impotent. Augustine of Hippo, who lived in 354 AD to 430 AD, he succinctly pointed this out. He said, even the dead surpass a deity who neither lives or has lived. Even the dead surpass a lifeless idol. I said that this was a humiliating taunt, but the ones being taunted aren't the ones being humiliated. The taunters themselves, though they were wise and discerning in their own eyes and in the eyes of their pagan culture, this was normal and accepted. It was approved. It was sanctioned. They're humiliated by the absurdity of their devotion to idols, gods of their own making that are less powerful than they themselves are, yet those makers of them bow down and worship them. They themselves, a creation of the very God they mock, are infinitely more capable than the gods they created and worshipped. And at Christmas, we celebrate the ultimate cosmic mic drop moment on this argument. When the infinite takes the form of an infant, with eyes that could see his people, with ears that listen to their cries, a nose that could inhale the fragrance of the sacrifices made to him, a mouth that could communicate the heart, the wisdom, and the truth of the Father, and hands and feet that could not only move toward the broken to feed and to heal, but they would spread wide and be nailed to a cross for the eternal salvation of those who worship him. And he is full of breath. Once again, he rose victorious from the grave, having defeated sin, death, and the grave forevermore. Not to us, Lord. Not to us. But to your name be the glory. Before we move on to our last two points, let's not overlook verse 8. It holds a vital principle that is so critical for the believer to understand. The principle is this, very simply. We become like that we worship. We become like that we worship. Look at verse 8 again. Those who make them, the idols, become like them. So do all who trust in them. The makers of these idols and all who trust in them will become just like them, lifeless, unable to experience the world incompetent, useless, and even detestable. Listen to what Hosea 9.10 says. Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel, like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable, like the thing they loved. We hear so much in the world about how good love is. Loving the wrong thing is detestable and makes you detestable, the word says. The idols of biblical times were often these physical objects, but the idols of our culture, they may be more subtle and they maybe are more sophisticated, but they are no less destructive and no less detestable. 
For example, the modern-day idol of rugged individualism, we see it all over, of you being the ultimate authority in your life. You are your own God. It's no less deadly and it's no less reprehensible than idols of silver and gold. It's no less an affront to the one who alone is sovereign and worthy of every bit of adoration, devotion, and glory. When we give in to even the smallest of temptations and say, my will be done, not yours, Lord, the aim of our worship has already changed. We become like that which we worship. The aim of our worship matters. G.K. Chesterton famously said that when we cease to worship God, we don't worship nothing. We worship anything. Indifference or apathy toward pursuing your relationship with God is not a lack of worship. It is not inconsequential. Where is your worship aimed? Are there idols you tolerate in your life? Ask yourself this question. Is the defining goal of every aspect of my life the supreme glory of God? That's a big question, isn't it? Is God's glory the authoritative driver in every aspect of my life, in my work life, in schooling, how I spend my leisure time, in my parenting and in my marriage, in where I live? that I consider what would glorify God where I live, in what you spend your money on, in how you respond in times of trial. And is the supreme glory of God evident in how you respond in times of blessing and, and, and good things? We could go on and on and on, but God has recently been exposing once again the idol in my heart our, our hearts are idol factories. They so easily make things. For me, one of those things is a freedom from physical pain. Now, you might be like, Christopher, that's not a bad thing. You're right. The desire to not be in pain is by no means evil. However, I'm tempted in those instances of physical pain and intense discomfort to dive into the turbulent sea of worry, of anxiety, of the what-if game, which never bears good fruit. And sadly, at times in those moments, I care very little about what's going to bring God the most glory. I just want personal relief. I just want it to stop. My worship changes direction. We're called to reflect God's glory, period. We're called to reflect God's glory. Not only when the day is going the way I like it. We're called to reflect God's glory. We're called to forsake inferior gods and ambitions. And helpfully, Psalm 115 continues with some great encouragement and a specific call to action for those who worship the one true God. Point three is the act of response. Let's look at verses 9 through 13. O Israel... Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. 
He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. See, whenever the Bible repeats something, we should pay careful attention to it because it's usually done to emphasize something pretty important. We saw it earlier in verse 1. Not to us. Not to us. We see it here again in these verses. And the response commanded here is to do what? Trust in the Lord. That's the response we're supposed to have. When others are mocking you, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. When circumstances don't seem to line up with the revealed truth about the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. When pain and suffering don't seem to diminish and there's no light at the end of the tunnel, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. When you're celebrating God's deliverance and you're rejoicing in blessings, don't forget, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. And once again, we see this contrast of the Lord, Yahweh, to the impotent idols of the makers. Yahweh helps his people. Yahweh is a shield. He's a protector for his people. And there's three groups of people mentioned in these verses. You've got the house of Israel. This refers to God's covenant people. He made covenant with Israel, and he's keeping his promises with Israel. Now, the house of Aaron, this is a subset of that. This is the group that includes the priests and the leaders of worship of God's people. They, too, are specifically instructed to trust in the Lord. This is particularly interesting because it was Aaron who, in Exodus 32, gave in to the pressure of the people at Mount Sinai to make a god for them to worship. They brought all their gold to him, and Aaron made a golden calf. And the Lord only relented, it says in Scripture, from consuming his people with his wrath because of his covenant promises, because he has steadfast love, and he is faithful even when we are faithless. Leaders, do not acquiesce to pressure around you to act unrighteously. Trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. And then the third category is those who fear the Lord. Here we see God's benevolence to save all who will worship and trust in him. God does not turn away anyone who puts their trust in him. And in verse 12, we're told that the Lord remembers his people and blesses them. Those who trust in the, <clears throat> trust in the Lord will not be disappointed. They will not be let down. Isn't that good news? He reiterates this three times to three groups of people. And in verses 9 through 11, and then also an additional descriptor, you might remember it, that was in there, it said both the small and the great. I love this. Let's be really clear. Those who fear the Lord, not just the really important people who fear the Lord. Not just those that have stature in society. Not just those who have done a lot of great things. They've got a good resume and they fear the Lord. Both the small and the great. I hope this is of great encouragement to you. You do not need to rise to some level to be noticed and accepted by God. You simply need to trust Him. Consider Psalm 32.10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. 
His remembering and blessing of you is not dependent on your status of life. It's not contingent on your greatness or perceived greatness. It's not based on your wealth. He remembers and blesses both the small and the great who trust in him. We can be so tempted to think that God is more pleased with us when we do great things. Likewise, we can be tempted to think that God withholds his favor and his love from us because we think we're small and insignificant. Remember what Josh said last week during our call to worship. Do not confuse small with insignificant. Don't confuse small with insignificant. We have significance because the one who made us has declared that we are significant. He remembers and blesses the small and the great. Both the small and the great are called to reflect the glory of the steadfast love and faithfulness that he has shown to us. Both are called to trust in him. So we've seen in this psalm the refusal to receive any glory because the glory is all attributed to the Lord. We've seen the embarrassing futility of worshiping idols or pursuing things other than the Lord. And we've heard the command to trust in God alone. And this psalm ends by giving us a glimpse into the inevitable outcome of those who worship the Lord and those who do not. Last point is this, the inevitable outcome. Let's look at verses 14 through 18. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made the heavens and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he's given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Verse 14, we see this prayer and a declaration that's founded on the promises of God to his people. That God will preserve generations who seek him, and that he will bless his people according to the promises that he's made. His covenant promises. In verse 16, God's authority as creator of all is restated, as is the creation mandate for man to have dominion on the earth. In other words, man is expected to steward the resources given to him on this earth for the goal of reflecting the glory of God. The glory of the creator in his creation. Man does this, not for his own renown, but for God's renown. And once again, we must ask, does my stewardship of God's resources echo the cry of not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory? And then lastly, in verses 17 and 18, we see the final outcome. Those who become like the idols they worshipped are silenced. While those who trusted in the Lord will praise him from this time forth and forevermore, it says. Don't skim over that time frame of when the Lord is supposed to receive praise. From this time, that's now. Now the Lord is worthy and to receive praise and forevermore he will. The praise of the Lord is not something that will eventually be for one day. I mean, there's going to be praising the Lord in heaven. We read about it in Revelation. It's going to be spectacular and unlike anything we've probably experienced, but the time is now to be praising as well. Time is now to be reflecting glory. The psalmist is ending where he started, with praise and adoration 
of the far superior God who blesses his worshipers on his merit, not theirs. We become like that we worship. So as we close this morning, let me ask again, where is your mirror aimed? Where's your worship aimed? What or who is your trust ultimately resting in? That's not three separate questions. Those are all connected. Those are all connected. I mentioned at the start that this psalm calls us to zealously and pervasively reflect the supreme glory of God. We are to relentlessly, without any letdown, refuse glory and reflect the glory of God. And we're to do this pervasively. There is not any dark corner of our lives which is off limits from the command to reflect the glory of God. Sadly, if we're honest, it's probably not too hard to think of areas or times in our lives where this just isn't the case. Where there's small compromises. And those small compromises in our lives distort the reflection of Christ. Ask any parent in the room, partial obedience, it's still disobedience. Getting it mostly right isn't what we're called to do. And if we're honest, we've fallen short. However, the good news and the reason we celebrate Christmas is that God knew this and he executed a plan of salvation where Jesus would be born and live the perfect life that we couldn't live. He would die the death that we deserve for falling short. He would rise from the grave defeating sin he would save all who turned to him with faith and repentance, who would trust in him to be their help and their shield, and he would give his children the Holy Spirit to empower them to walk in the newness of life that was purchased for them by the Savior, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, as we studied not too many months ago in Ephesians. We need God. And God has kept his promise to deliver those who fear him and worship him. If you've never trusted Jesus for salvation in this way, I cannot urge you strongly enough this morning to trust in him. Turn from your sin and ask Christ to save you. Ask him to fill you with your spirit so that you can live differently and you can move from death to life in how you live. And for those of you who have trusted in Christ for salvation, Consider where your aim might need to be recalibrated a little. Has your scope gotten off a little bit over time and you need to get that precision back again? Forsake the impotent idols that you may be coddling, which are silently but most assuredly causing you to pursue death disguised as life. And it's robbing you of the joy for living for something greater and more satisfying than yourself and your own desires. Flee apathy and indifference. Re-aim your worship. Re-aim it if it needs to be re-aimed. So as the band comes up, I want us to take a moment to ask the Lord to reveal any areas. We're just going to take a couple of moments to reflect here. Just ask the Lord, Lord, 
Show me if there's any areas that I'm unaware of where my worship needs to be recalibrated, where I'm living for something other than reflecting the glory of God. I'm seeking glory that you alone deserve. I'm putting my trust in a relationship other than my relationship with the Lord. I'm putting my trust in my bank account instead of in the Lord, or wherever that may be. Let's take a couple of moments, consider that, and we're going to sing a song, and then I'll come back to close us out.